1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 115. Today in the show, I'm joined by Joe Miles, a hardcore whitetail hunter from South Carolina who's consistently found a way to kill big, mature bucks from the southeast all the way up to the Midwest. And we're exploring exactly how he's been able to do that. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. As I just mentioned, we've got Joe Miles on the show with me today, and we're going to be discussing exactly how he's had such great success across the country, whether that be in South Carolina... Illinois or Kansas or anywhere else and you might be familiar with Joe as he's been featured on the Matthews Dominant Bucks TV show in the past and is currently a member of the Team 200 show along with past podcast guest Adam Hayes. And I'll let Joe share a little more about himself in a minute but in short he's just someone who has had incredible success in a lot of different areas chasing big mature bucks. And my goal today is to figure out exactly how he's managed to do it. You know, what are the keys to success for a guy who's killed well over 100 deer, four of them grossing over 170 inches? That's what we're going to try and figure out today over the next hour or two. But briefly, before we get to that, before we get Joe on the line, we need to thank our partners at Sitka Gear who make this podcast possible and take a minute to share with you our Sitka story of the day. And today's story comes from Sitka Gear's Corey Pearsall. Corey came to whitetails late in life, and at first he thought compared to chasing big game on the ground out in Montana, whitetail hunting from a tree stand would be pretty boring. That is, until he tried it. And so I went on a a hunt in Illinois, Heartland Lodge.
0: Um, And Matt, their head guide there, you know, we had a blast. Put me in some great locations and just opened my eyes to environment the world of sitting in a tree stand every movement makes your heart beat faster every sound that you hear whether it's a squirrel whether it's a turkey coyote coming in whatever it is it just makes you excited whereas on the ground spot and stalk you don't have that very I mean you have it you run into it but not nearly as often as you do when you're sitting in a tree stand And you see everything. I mean, you have 360 degrees at your fingertips. And so it goes from dead static to just like heartbeat racing just like that. Uh, And that that absolutely hooked me.
1: Well, Corey, you are not the only one. The electric excitement of watching a hunt unfold from a stand, that's something pretty special. And I got to say, I'm pretty darn excited for the first opportunity this fall to experience that. It's coming fast, and I can't wait. But with all that said, if you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear or want to create your own Sitka story someday, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now let's get back to the show and welcome Joe Miles to the podcast. All right, with us now on the show is Joe Miles. Welcome to the show, Joe.
2: Hey, Mark, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty good, although uh, I just kind of realized that we are in a super muggy environment here in Michigan, and I did not set my AC up, so I'm cooking right now. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's it's warm and muggy over here.
2: Well, South Carolina right now is 97 degrees and about 94% humidity, so I will trade places with you whenever you are ready.
1: <laughs> All right, I guess I can't complain. That's brutal.
2: That <laughs> it, it, it is terrible, and I wanted to shoot my bow this afternoon, and um. I'm gonna have to wait until about eight o'clock. I think I'm gonna shoot in the dark tonight.
1: Yeah, that's that's the worst. We we've had horrible humidity too, um, so I've been I've been trying to exercise leading up to my elk hunt this September. So I, I woke up a little early and went went running early in the rain, so I didn't have to be too uncomfortable and shot my bow in the rain early this morning, just so I didn't have to deal with humidity. But it's tough to avoid that this kind of this time of year.
2: Man, it is. I'm glad there's only about three months of it, especially in South Carolina. I am. I'm ready to get out of here. I I just uh, got back from a stone sheep hunt in British Columbia, and that was a a really good break, man. We we had 55, 60 degree mornings, got up to in the 70s during the day, and um, man, that was uh, that was a, a breath of fresh air.
1: Oh, I bet. I love that kind of weather. That sounds perfect. So, how it's did nice. how, how did that hunt go?
2: It went great, man. I got a good ram. Um, It took us four days to get into where we were going, and um, we actually spotted the ram the day before. He was about three and a half miles away, roughly, Um, so we actually had to pack our camp up, run back up on horses, go a full day over to get to where he was, and set up camp next morning. We uh, hiked up to where he was. It took us a while, but we ended up finding that exact band of rams and uh, shot the biggest one out of him, out of that band on opening day. So could not be happier.
1: Wow. That's exactly how you want it to happen.
2: Yeah, and that never happens for me, Mark. I'm <laughs> always the absolute last day, last second of, of the hunt. But um, it it, it, was, it was my turn to get one on opening day
1: every once in a while it happens that's I, I i live for those every once in a while moments i guess that's for sure yeah, so yeah, yeah. so can you can you share with us exactly what it is that you do that allows you to go on these kinds of hunts and chase whitetails as much as i know you do and maybe share a little bit more of your background too about how you got to this point
2: yeah absolutely i um obviously grew up in south carolina um played a lot of baseball and actually went to To college on a baseball scholarship and tore my shoulder up um and and wasn't able to keep playing Uh, but my baseball was a real passion but but probably my my biggest passion like a lot of young guys was hunting you know I grew up hunting with my dad in the the swamps of South Carolina and uh that that really was was my true passion I I started bow hunting when I was about 14 and and you know we've got a lot of wild hogs down here and a ton of whitetail no real big ones but but, uh, but but lots of them so um got a lot of interaction with deer when I was really young my dad you know he kind of showed me the the ropes when, when when i was little and then just kind of turned me loose and, and said go make your own mistakes and see if you can figure out these uh these, these awesome creatures and you know worked hard at it for years and then you know went off to college and and let the baseball thing kind of fizzle out and and then I, I actually started guiding i started guiding um Waterfowl hunting in Mississippi and Arkansas, and I started, believe it or not, guiding some elk and mule deer hunts in, in eastern Oregon. I went out there on a hunt um, out of college, and the outfitter asked me if I would stay and, and learn how to call elk and, and help with some of his customers, so I started doing that. Wow. And then, he, yeah, then he, he introduced me to um, Safari Club International, You know, an organization being from South Carolina and, and, and from a pretty rural area. I didn't know, you know, much about Safari Club and, and anything, you know, of of that nature and and he ended up that, that guy that owned that ranch took me to a Safari Club convention and um I was introduced to that world. You know, it, it you know, knew obviously all about Africa and dreamed about going over there. And um so I started a, a hunt brokerage business. I saw, you know, several companies out there that were basically travel agents for for hunters you know they would take a client that was interested in going to Argentina on a dove hunt or Africa on a safari and and match them up you know with a really good proven outfitter so I've spent a lot of time you know traveling in the beginning and um lining up the different outfits and and that sort of thing and and that's kind of how I got started in the business. And you know, it's it's, it's grown qu- quite a bit since since we started in in literally in in 2000. So we've been doing it for 16 years.
1: Wow! And so that that seems to allow you a lot of flexibility to go on some of these hunts and and kind of see some of these pretty neat places, huh?
2: It it does. You know, I worked in Africa when I when I really got going. I worked in there during the hunting season for about six years and ended up getting a professional hunter's license. And that you know again was was the plan. I was going to book these hunts and then actually be the guide. And then, you know, Mark, you have, I don't know if you have kids or not, but we had a, you know, I got married, had a son come along and, and I, I kind of just got out of the guiding altogether, Africa and domestically, and just really focused on the brokerage of these hunts. And um, it just grew and grew. And I think, you know, when, when you, when you work at something for a long, long time, you know it, it gets a little better and a little better and, and and our business has definitely definitely done that we still got a long way to go but it is you know becoming more and more successful and it, it's able to you know afford me the opportunity to go on some hunts that I really thought I'd never ever be able to do
1: yeah that's awesome now with, with all the work you're doing with that it sounds like you're I mean you're still really involved with the whitetail game too can you tell us a little bit about you know like the kind of success you're having on, on big white tails. It seems like you, you're still putting a lot of time and energy into that too.
2: Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm on the uh, team 200 uh, show, Adam Hayes. And I have that show together and, um,
1: you know,
2: I I started out, um, a real good buddy of mine, um, Mark Beck that owns a real estate company in Illinois. He got me hooked up with Matthew's dominant bucks when they first started. And so I started working with that show and, um, then started working um, when he, when Tom Miranda started the Whitetail Slam, I uh, you know went in and did did a couple seasons with that, and then did the, um, the the show with Adam, the Team 200. And you know growing up in the South, Whitetail has truly always been my, my personal passion, and especially bow hunting. And and as I alluded to earlier, we've got a ton of deer, but um you know we don't get the the, the bone structure, the antler growth that they do in the Midwest, and, and, and so that, you know, obviously that's just kind of where I gravitated to, and where a lot of people gravitate to, to really chase these giant deer around.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard not to to be tempted to go chase those Midwest bucks, because there's, there's something special about that part of the country, I can't deny that, um, but it's interesting, you, you know, with you being from South Carolina and hunting the Southeast, we get so many, of our listeners and readers and everything, they come from the areas like that, parts of the country, but so much of the hunting media today is all focused on the Midwest, and we talk about, you know, Iowa and Illinois and Ohio and all that, but rarely do we get guys on here who have experience hunting down in the southeast part of the country, so I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, what makes that part of the country uniquely challenging or different than maybe what people are used to up in Illinois or Michigan or Iowa or whatever it might be?
2: Yeah, and that's a, a really good question. A lot of people aren't aware, you know, especially of South Carolina. Like, for example, yesterday our rifle season came in. Um, you can rifle hunt. You can, there is no limit on bucks. You can shoot as many, but you can shoot 20 a day. Um, and our season goes from August 15th to January 1st. There's no limit on bucks. They do limit the number of does you can take. Um, you have to actually get those tags um, also um, kind of a Southern tradition is the dog hunting and they actually down into parts of the low country in South Carolina, they still actually run deer with dogs, which is a pretty controversial thing, but they've done it for a long, long time. And, and that's still part of our culture and, and, and part of you know some of the hunting tradition in South Carolina. So as you can imagine, the pressure that our deer are under, um, especially bucks and, and older bucks, it, it, it's insane, and I would argue there's more pressure on deer in the state of South Carolina than any other state out there. Again, we have a rifle season that comes in August 15th. It runs to January 1st, and you can hunt deer with dogs. Um, you can obviously bait in the state of South Carolina, and there are a ton of people here that hunt. So it's, it, it, the pressure is, is unbelievable. And to kill a four-and-a-half, a a a a five-and-a-half-year-old buck with archery equipment in South Carolina is is quite a feat. That that is a tough thing to do. And and truly, um, you know, you get maybe one, two opportunities a year um, because we have so many deer that do make it to that age class that are just 100% nocturnal. And, And you may get one crack at them a year. And if you don't, if you don't make it happen then, you know, it's just not going to happen.
1: So tell me this, Joe, what if, what if you couldn't travel to the Midwest this year? You only were allowed to hunt your home state. What would be, how would you kill a mature buck in South Carolina this year?
2: Right. So how I would do it is I would use a lot of the same, Tactics that I use in the Midwest. I'm obviously a big trail camera guy to do an inventory on a piece of property um, I Personally Don't go now into the swamps into these big plantations that are hunting a lot I will go around the the the, the county suburb areas and get a 20 acre 30 acre 50 acre woodlot. It was maybe a development that fell through and I'll seek out those places that, that get zero hunting pressure, because there may be an ordinance where you can't shoot a rifle in there. Um, nobody's ever thought about it. It's overlooked. And then I'll set my trail cameras up in there. And, and every now and again, you'll find a a pretty smoker buck for South Carolina in a place like that, or at least a buck you can get a crack at.
1: Yeah, so it's all about so finding those areas of no pressure, right?
2: Yeah, that's it, man, especially in South Carolina. No, no pressure and, and really the overlooked areas. And, and you know, developments that, that are, are kind of on rivers or, or right outside the city limits, you know, those things are, are gold mines because, it, you know, you find out who the developer is. You know, they may want a little bit for a lease or they may just give you permission to go in there and look after the place. So that, those are those are a gold mine when you can find them so that that's what I will be doing some this year and and, and that is what I have, have have done in the past and and so once I you know get that place locked in um, I'll get my trail cameras in there and kind of do an inventory of what we got and then then start playing the game
1: now you know what I've seen in Michigan in Michigan we've got a lot more hunting pressure than say Iowa you know these deer here in Michigan are they're very different than those deer in Iowa. They're much more spooky. They're much less apt to fall for something like calls or decoys or aggressive tactics like that. Are you finding similar things with those deer down in South Carolina, or is there anything else that actually makes their behavior different than some of these other well-known states?
2: Well, again, our our buck-doe ratio is so screwed up. We have, in in some areas, 20 20 doe to every one buck. So calling does not work really well in South Carolina. It, it, it hadn't for me. Um, you know, it, it, it can it, – you know, you can get a buck's attention with a grunt, but like you say, the big aggressive stuff, there's just – there's no competition for does, you know, so they're not – they're just not really going to come to horns. Um, you know, if you see a buck out cruising and you grunt at him, yeah, he'll, he'll come over to you. But but I'm with you. The, the, the big aggressive calling, um, that's not a tactic I use in South Carolina – um, I am all about the ambush and figuring out what that deer is doing, and then you know, strategically going in on certain days with certain winds that I know he's comfortable moving on and 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 killing him that way, as opposed to going into somewhere like that and and doing a whole bunch of aggressive rattling, calling, you know, stuff that I may use in the Midwest. I'm I'm definitely not going to use in South Carolina.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, one of the things we hear a lot from people from that part of the country is that they can't relate to the types of terrain and habitat that we're talking about when we're hunting in Ohio or Illinois or Iowa. You know, we're talking, okay, we got a bunch of big ag fields and the fingers of timber coming out into it, and it's very clear where bedding areas and where feeding areas are. And lots of times I hear from folks down in the southern part of the country who say, hey, we hunt these great big pine plantations or big swamps. Like I can't relate to what you guys are talking about at all. I mean, what kind of habitat are you seeing down in that part of the country, Joe, and how do you find deer in that? Because I imagine it's pretty different than the typical ag land that we hunt up here in the Midwest.
2: Yeah, it, it is. You know, South Carolina used to be a big farming uh, state, and it, it's really started farming timber. So you get tons of these big, um, like you said, pine plantations um, that that are just acres and acres and acres of, of uh of, of pine woods. And, and, you know, if that's all you've got to hunt, um, you, you, you hunt the, the opposites of, of what you've got. So if you, you, or, or that's where you're going to find the deer, if you've got endless rows of pine trees, and then you've got a clear cut, your deer are going to be in that clear cut because that's where the food is. Or if you've got a little, you know, you got a little, a little spot of water, you know, that that's where you can find them. You know, where the, where the smallest terrain feature is, the difference is where I tend to you know, to find the deer here in South Carolina, you know, and again, even even with with like I was talking about earlier, these these abandoned developments or whatever there may be inside there. You know, if it leads out to some to, to a little bit of crops, there are still some some crops around Columbia. few guys still grow some soybeans and some corn. And if you can find those areas, man, those are those are money.
1: Interesting. Now you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, if you were setting up on a property like this, you'd get your, get your trail cameras out and let those start to work too. And I imagine you use that in conjunction with finding these habitat areas, but how do you look at trail cameras? I mean, how do you use them? Lots of guys have different ways of using them. Some people are super aggressive. Some people just take inventory with them, whether it be in South Carolina or in the Midwest, what's your usual trail camera strategy?
2: My, my first thing is to do an inventory, um, and, and here in South Carolina, I'll, I'll speak to that to begin with, um, or really any any state where you can put out mineral or, or food sites or, or you know bait sites, whatever you want to call them. Um, I like to do an inventory there, and even if it's a, a nighttime picture and I find a big buck, I mean the first thing is to do an inventory on the property because if you, if you don't have a big one in there, especially after they shed their velvet. Um, you know, the only chance you got to kill one, a big one is in the rut. When you get a trespasser that comes over, you know, looking for, you know, looking for a hot doe. Um, so the first thing is, is, is to do an inventory and, you know, if I've got a real good bedding cover and I get an earlier picture of that deer, um, then I'll start positioning my trail cameras a little bit differently because I want to figure out exactly where he's bedding. I think that is... Before the rut gets going, the, the number one key to killing a big deer will, will actually be the second key. The first key is having a big deer to hunt. The second key is knowing where he beds. So if you can, if you can figure out why, where he beds, 90% of it's done, uh, because obviously he's going to get up out of there and move, and you can figure that out with trail cam. You know, you, you, you put those in the likely transition areas that he's going to use And you can figure out, based on when he gets up out of that bedding area and where he's going, how you can devise a plan to kill him. You know, another thing a trail camera will tell you that a lot of guys don't look at is wind direction. You know, a lot of times you put the trail camera out, you get a picture of him. Okay, I got a picture of him. That's great. He was moving in daylight. Wonderful. But what what they don't keep track of is what wind direction was that day. You know where he's bedding you got a daylight picture of him. You need to have a wind log so you can look at that trail camera and say, okay, it was Tuesday, 4.30 on August 16th. Well, you need to know what that wind was doing because that deer was comfortable moving out of that bedding area in that direction with that wind. And when you can put that together, then you know the next time you're going to have a southeast wind, um, that he's more than likely going to be moving that way again because he was comfortable, and you can you can figure out a, you know a weak length in where he's traveling that you can maximize that wind and 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 you know stack the deck in your favor. I mean, it's certainly not a guarantee, but that that's a, a pretty good way to do it.
1: So when you're when you're trying to figure out that betting area with your cameras, how do you? I feel like one of the greatest challenges with that is using getting those cameras out and being able to check them without spooking that deer and making him not use that bedding area anymore or making him, you know, move less during daylight. How do you manage to balance that?
2: Yep, absolutely. I like to do it in the middle of the day when it's raining, um, you know, and and go in that way. Um, or, you know, depending on where you have them set up, if it's on an active farm, and there's a tractor moving around or trucks in and out of there every day, You know, th- then I just copy what the farmers are doing, and I go in when they go in, I go out when they go out because they're, they, you know, they're used to that. In South Carolina, it's pretty easy for us to find a bedding area because it, it is the thickest, nastiest, unpenetrable place that you can find, and guaranteed that's the bedding area. The, the deer are going to be living in there, and you've got trails coming out of there. You can see the big tracks. And you don't actually have to penetrate the bedding area. We just want to know that there's a big one living in there. Um, and, 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 you know, I think even in the Midwest, you know, like you said, it's, you know, a lot of big ag area and, and then some timber draws. Well, I mean, you can look at a map and see, all right, this is a thick timber draw. you know, and then there's ag land all around here. This has got to be a bedding area. And you can set your camera cameras up on the fringe and, and then determine that he's bedding in there and then, I think, you know, as you get a better moon, as you get closer to the pre-rut, the rut, the deer are more likely to get up, you know, once they've got the velvet off their head and move a little bit more in in daylight.
1: Yeah. So does that mean then that you hold off on hunting some of those spots till a little bit later than the year, or are you going in early season hunting in some of these areas?
2: As soon as I get a picture of a deer, now if I can hunt them in velvet, obviously, or, or when they're still patterned on beans and, and 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 all that sort of stuff, you know, you got to crack then. But I'm I'm really not touching on that. But once once they're out of velvet, if I get a daylight picture of a deer once he's out of velvet and and he's on a wind that I can hunt, I'm hunting. I I won't wait. Um, if if I have the right moon, I'm a a big proponent of the moon and if i've got a deer that i've got a daylight picture of he's out of velvet he's moved in daylight and i get the, that same wind and i've got a, a red moon i i don't care if it's in in the the, the second week of september or you know in in, early, in the october lull I, i'm gonna hunt him then because he's, he's shown that he's killable
1: so that kind of situation if you got a deer like that are you the and let's say hypothetically this is mid-october or earlier you know we're we're not getting into the rut yet are you typically going to try to hunt as close as you can to the bedding area or do you like to stay off hunt the food sources and play it safe at that time of year
2: it, it, it all depends on the deer numbers um you know if you've got a lot of deer that are coming out of this bedding area you've got to be careful there so that's not a a simple question to answer because every situation, every deer will be different. You know, is he coming out somewhere alone? Um, If he is, then boy, I've got a, I got a real good chance. You know, if I'm set up on a field in October, hoping he's going to get there before dark, um, you know, and I've got 20 other deer in the field and I've got to climb down. If he doesn't show up and I blow the, the, the the plot up or whatever it may be. So every, every deer, every situation is different. And man, I, I think that's one of the reasons they're so fun to hunt is that you know, every one of them seem, seems to be different. And, and you, you really, man, you, you, you got to live and learn. you got to try stuff and, and, and just remember and, and try and use common sense and, and look at every deer differently. I don't think there's one set way to do it because, again, every deer is different and, and uh, every, every situation, every farm has got different features that will allow you to do different things.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree to your point. That's probably one of the things that makes this so so addicting, so much fun, is that it's it's always different. You always have to be learning. Every deer is unique. It's a it's one of the greatest challenges in the world as far as I'm concerned, trying to figure out these different deer. Every year it's new, and, and you, you start from zero and figure it out.
2: Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the beauty is when you have figured it out on a farm, and another big deer shows up in that same area. You're so far ahead of the game and, and a lot of times that happens. You know, you you find an area that you can you you can get trail cameras in, find a big deer, he likes it, he feels comfortable there. There's something about that spot he likes. You kill that deer, a, a lot of times another big one the next year will move in there because it's the same stuff that that buck likes and is set up for him. Um you know like like the we you know the the little 29 acre track in Illinois. Three years in a row, I killed great big bucks off of it, and it was it's just 29 acres, but it was something that was very very little pressure in there. It was a thick place that fed out to a CRP. I mean, excuse me, fed out to a big um, ag area, and those big deer felt real safe in there, and I would only go in there at the absolute perfect time. And three years in a row, I killed a 164, a an 186, and a 183, back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. And, um, and, and it just that area was set up perfect to hold a big deer. Now, you know, places in Kansas or, or Ohio that I may hunt, you know, I, I may not be able to keep the property. Um, it may change every year. The farmer may cut timber on it. He may the, the crops may be rotated again there's a million things that, that could happen but it when it's the same and you have the, the, the you know a big deer that you killed in there and the same thing happens the next year you already know uh, you're, you're so far ahead of the curve that, that you, you ought to be slapped if you don't kill it right <laughs> it definitely
1: it's definitely a better position than starting brand new that's for sure so yeah. t- tell us a little more about this, this small property because there's so many people that hunt small properties. You know, most people aren't lucky to have hundreds and hundreds of acres and prime states. A lot of guys have got 20 acres or 40 acres or 10 acres behind their parents' house or whatever it might be. I guess, I guess first I'm curious, what do you think makes a good small property? Because I think that's, at least if you're in the process of trying to find a new spot and you only have small properties to pick from, finding the right small property can make A big difference don't
2: you think without a doubt and they're not all created equal um there's no question that there are two things that in my opinion make or really really three things that that make a small property uh deadly dynamite whatever you want to call it the first thing is, is thick 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 cover um you know especially if you're after a big deer that that's the first thing. So if you have to go in there and hinge cut or can get permission to do that, or it just happens to be CRP or whatever it is, thick cover is is the number one thing I look for on a small property to hunt. The second thing is I stay out of there. No pressure. I don't want anybody to know about it, don't want my friends to know about it, don't want anybody to go in there ever unless it's me. And it, it's for a real specific person. See, I think a lot, of, a lot of guys, you know, they get a small farm and you know, it, it's in their nature. They want to go hunt. They want to go out there. They want to go walk around on it. They want to walk in there and scout and see if there are any new rubs. Man, a four-and-a-half, five-and-a-half-year-old buck has found this little 30-acre sanctuary and thinks nobody's going to be in there bothering him. If you go in there, it's over. He is long gone. But 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 it's it's, it's almost like a little trap. You know, that, that little thing. if you can convince him to get in there in bed, or that's a place that he likes to go and feels comfortable, then he's really, really, really killable. You just have to wait until the conditions are perfect. And, and you know, that's the only time that you can kill him. Like, like on the 29-acre track in Illinois, those three years that I killed those deer, the first one I killed on the second day I was in there, the second year I killed on the first day, and... The third year I killed on the second day.
3: Wow. And,
2: and I had to wait. I had to wait. You know, I, I hunted a day and then stayed out of there. And, and, you know, I'm away from my family and everything else. I had to wait four days before I could get back in there for a certain win. Um, so it, it takes big time discipline. But the, the flip side of that coin is that most everybody can afford to get a small place. You know, you don't have to have thousands and thousands of dollars to, to, to get these huge, huge leases, you can, if you work hard, it's not going to cost you much and you may, may get just permission to hunt in there. Um, so that, that's the give and the take. It can be a deadly trap and make it really easy to kill a big deer, but you got to be real smart about it and you got to work really hard to find it.
1: Yeah. Is this 29 acres? Do you own that Joe? Or is that a lease? I can't remember. I, I,
2: I I do not. Um, Uh, that that guy i was talking about earlier mark beck is the one that found that lease and he let me hunt it for for three years and now he is actually going to take a turn and hunt it some um which i think is absolutely fair um you know i i I leased it i i want to say i could be wrong here but i think it was 750 bucks a year is what it costs to lease it wow um and that was the that was the insurance and the and the payment for it so i mean (laughs) You
3: know, that's, you know,
2: it is a good bit of money, but it's not near what some of these big tracks calls.
1: Right. I mean, if you uh, pass on buying the new TV or don't go out to eat so much, you can save up that money in a year and put it towards something like that for sure. I think most people can, can do something like that. But it takes, like you said, hard work and choices, right?
2: Yeah, that's that it. In, and in, in 750, if that's, if that's too much, you're just going to have to work even harder and find one that's $100 or $200 or that you can just get permission, you know, to get into. Those are few and far but between, but, but you can find them. I mean, they, they are out there. you you got to network, and you got to get with these people and, and um, you know, make it happen. You just can't say, man, I just don't have anywhere to hunt. If you really are passionate about killing a big deer – you, man, it's, it's like anything else. The harder you work at it, the more successful you're going
1: to be. Yeah. I read somewhere that you're pretty serious, or maybe at least you were in the past, um, in this article I'd read, pretty serious about how you go about trying to get permission on the properties that you that you really want to hunt. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you have gone about, you know, finding places to hunt and, and getting that permission or, you know, access via lease or whatever it might be? Yeah,
2: I you know, I think the whole, the whole thing is to be genuine, um, you know, and, and, really friend these people. Um, I think that's the, that, that's been the key to my success in finding properties is, is, you know, like Mark, for instance, you know, uh, Beck in Illinois. Um, you know, I met him through a mutual guy. He happens to be in the real estate business. Um, he had access to a lot of farms. He and I literally became buddies, because, and we live how many states apart? I'm in South Carolina. He's in Illinois. Um, and And you know, our relationship grew as buddies, even though it was far away, he would come down, and our families would go to the beach together. he'd stay with me during the summer. I would go out and hunt with him, and you know our wives became friends and it it's a genuine relationship. The worst thing you can do is go in and try and use somebody to get a get a spot just to hunt you know you, you don't talk with them in the in the off season you don't stay in touch um you know, that's not going to – they're going to turn it over to somebody else or they're going to see right through that. So I think being, being genuine is the, is the main thing. I mean, let them know what you're after. But then, you know, if they're in, in, in the NASCAR, man, get them some NASCAR tickets. If they're – you know, if you live in the south and they like seafood, send them some shrimp. You know, really make an effort to be friends with them, and, and that's going to go a long way um, in acquiring, you know, the, the, the different type properties and then you know also real estate agents man you know if, if i'm in south carolina and i wanted somewhere to start i'd do some research on where where big deer were killed in illinois which counties i'd call some realtors that maybe have some farms and stuff for sale and ask them you know if, if there are any small farms or, or rural areas that allow hunting or, or dilapidated developments you know and i keep going back to that over and over again but man that that's a that's a great spot, you know, abandoned golf courses, man you find something like that 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 that's still got some grass growing there man that that can be something too um you, you just gotta think outside the box from what every other guy's doing,
1: yeah, that's one of the one of the topics that we get so many questions about is I think access is is definitely just one of those issues that so many people deal with it It's tough to find somewhere to hunt if you're not you know born into a family that has a bunch of land um that's it's a big challenge. Do you have any typical way you go about actually going through the process of actually asking? I get this question a lot. You know, what do you actually say? And I've got kind of you know, I I do a lot of door knocking here in Michigan and other Midwest states, and I kind of have a I don't know just a general routine now I go through in each place to kind of you know introduce myself and chit chat and you know explain what I'm trying to do. But I'm always curious to hear how other people go about it. How do you do that?
2: Yeah, for for me, you know, it, it's funny. Um, being in South Carolina, if let, let's say that I'm going to um, Illinois for, for the first time to try and find a spot to hunt, you know, that's what I want to do. Man, it, it, being from South Carolina, the, the, the Illinois folks look at us as a whole as being backwoods and you know rednecks or whatever you want to say, um, and. I would get him. I would get in my truck and drive out there in the summer and go to different little diners where the farmers hang out, and I would start talking to them. I'd say, "Hey, man, I'm from South Carolina. I'm looking for a place to hunt out here. You guys got any leads?" They find. They, in my case, they have found it really funny that I've come all the way from South Carolina <laughs> to find a place to, to shoot a stupid deer, uh-huh. and they are so apt, so apt to help me. I'm not a local guy. That, you know, the the families may have had feuds, or this person doesn't like this person. Hey, this guy's from South Carolina. You know, he's he's serious. You know, he's come all the way out of here. I want to help the guy out. So I don't say I play the poor, pitiful redneck, but but I, but I sure let it be known that I'm from South Carolina. and I've come a long way, and I sure could use some help. <laughs> um, and, and, and that that tactic really works.
1: I believe it. It is amazing how just. One of the things that i found helps the most is, you know, even if, you know, I go up to a door and I knock on that door and this person says no for whatever reason, to your point, just continuing a conversation and asking for their help. You know, do you happen to know anyone else I should talk to? It's amazing how many times that ends up being the way you find something that actually gets you access. It's just talking to people and asking for help and and it may not be on their property, but lots of times they can point you in the right direction, share with you a friend of a friend of a friend and who knows where they'll take you.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you just you 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 just can't take no. You got to keep keep pursuing it and 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 come up with with something that works. And if it works with a couple guys, you know, keep trying the same thing. I mean that that you. you I mean, the bottom line is you got to find somewhere to hunt. So you got to keep working at it.
1: That's the truth. That's the truth. Now back to the small property thing. You talked about a big key to how you hunt those and how you have success on a small property like that is waiting for the right conditions. Can you elaborate in more detail on exactly what you're paying attention to? I know you mentioned moon. would love to hear more about specifically what you're paying attention to the moon and then any other conditions, weather, time of year, wind. I'd love to hear about the details on all that.
2: Yep. I'll go through, um, you know, some, some actual kills. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of theories and, and um, ideas, but but – I guess if it, it's start with you, I'll just relate it to those three bucks on that little small property, and, and go through exactly exactly how I killed them. Yeah. Um. First, first of all, um, the first deer we call Big Lefty. Um, it's a non-typical on his left side, and he was a a, a you know mainframe five point on his right side. But anyway, um, got trail camera pictures of him early after he was out of velvet, and a couple of them in daylight and this was in September October because it was the beginning of football season because Mark texts me the pictures and I was at a football game so I know it was the beginning of September October when he um when he sent me the picture so we knew there was a big deer in there he was out of velvet and he was not afraid to show himself in daylight so I knew knew all of that stuff Then he started, you know, becoming a little more nocturnal. The pictures we got were a little more nocturnal, a little more nocturnal. And then all of a sudden he shows up again. Mid-October, he shows up again, daylight, and it's on a red moon, one of our overhead moons that the moon guide shows. And I saw the wind that he was on because I had a wind log for that property. Every day I would log the wind for for that part of Illinois around around that farm. Um, so here I know two things. I know that he is cooperating with the moon guide and I know that he's not afraid to move on this wind. It just so happened that I already had a stand hung perfect for that wind. I needed a North East wind. He was really comfortable moving on that and I needed a red moon. So I waited until the next red moon cycle was coming around and I got in my truck, and I drove to Illinois. Now, granted, nobody has been into this property at all other than to pull these camera cards, and that was done during rain, or it, it happens to be a hiking trail that comes through this property that some people use. And the deer are a little more custom, accustomed to people going in and out of there, so that's even a, uh, an added bonus to this property. So pulled the card. That, that was the only time anybody had been in there. There had been no shooting lanes cut, nothing. The stands had been hung the year before, so there had been nothing in there. So I went in there. As soon as we we got a northeast wind and a red moon, and I went in and I took actual replacement straps with me for that afternoon and replaced the straps on the climbing uh, sticks and the stands as I climbed up, and I had plenty of shooting lanes. And the day I killed him was the exact day that he had shown that he likes to move. And nobody had been, I hadn't hunted in there, nobody had hunted in there, and it just worked out absolutely perfect, going with what he, the, the cards that he was showing. He showed that he'd move in daylight on a northeast wind, and he showed that he'd move on a red moon. And I just, once I learned that, when that cycle repeated itself, I moved back in there. It, it also helped that it was towards the end of October, which they're a little more antsy then to get on their feet anyway. Um, so that that's what I look for. I mean, you can. I don't know a tremendous amount about the, the barometer and the barometric pressure and all that stuff. I know Mark Jury is a big proponent of that.
3: Mm-hmm. I do
2: know that they tend to move. Or my experience, and, and this is completely anecdotal. My, my experience has been on a high pressure afternoon, um, the, the bigger deer tend to get on their feet. It, it, I don't. I don't think I've ever killed a really big mature buck you know in an afternoon on a low pressure day it's always been on a high pressure day and it seems like i see more deer on high pressure days than i do on really low pressure days
1: yeah that seems to be a consistent thing that we hear from so many people too those high pressure days rising and high 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 barometer that's that's pretty money can you can you elaborate on the red moon we talked with adam hayes about this last fall a little bit um, but you know, we, we get so many questions still to this day. What exactly, yeah, you know, wh- whether you've got the moon guide or you're looking at this and you, you just know when the moon rise or set or overhead underfoot is, can you just explain again what this is, how it works and, and why you pay attention to it?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I know, man, I, I, I listen to your podcast and I, I'll hop up on a soapbox for just, just a second. And I've heard the, the Q, QDMA biologists um, talk about their studies showing the moon doesn't have an effect on mm-hmm. deer and weather doesn't have an effect on deer. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that, man. Auburn, you know, I've read studies from Auburn done by um, Louisiana State University, Auburn University, and South Carolina DNR. They radio collared deer, and this is recent. This just happened. And, and um, th- there is proof in their study that the moon absolutely has an effect on, on deer movement. Um, you know, the radio collars, some of them last three months, some of them last six months, um, some of them last less than that.
1: Um,
2: and, and you know, I don't think there's any effect. I mean, it's just it's natural. The, the, the moon is a natural phenomenon that, that, that happens, that affects tides. You know, it, it affects a lot of things. And, and in all of my experience, even when I worked in Africa, I had an, an old tracker. It would come get us early when that moon was overhead during the afternoons. He'd come get us. In those days, we killed more than we ever – and we saw more on those afternoons. And that, that was absolutely – he was an old guy that had hunted his whole life in Africa, and and, and he figured that out. So I don't – you know, I, I would I would argue that the that the moon definitely has an effect on whitetail deer movement from a scientific point of view where there are studies that show that it does have an effect and from an experience in the field um and then you know i'm going to skip over to weather for a second because i heard that biologist from qdma say that weather didn't have any effect on deer now Mark, was he talking about any effect on deer throughout the year or only during the rut i'm a little fuzzy
1: there you know i honestly don't remember the specifics of the study that he mentioned but uh to To his point, one of the things he did say is anecdotally, he and so many other hunters have seen the same thing as you and me in that weather, moon, these things definitely do seem to, but there's got to be something with these studies that for some reason, maybe it is the time of year, like you just mentioned, or how they're measuring increased or decreased movement that just, because I think almost all of us have seen some of these things, you know, noticeably correlated with increased Day, daylight movement—it's it, hard not to believe that some of these things have some type of effect, but uh, it, it's got to come down to the particulars of how these studies are done and, and what specifically they're looking to prove or disprove. Maybe that's kind of what I think.
2: Yeah, it, it, it could be. I mean, I—I I was laughing with Adam the other day. What we ought to do is say, "All right, uh, we'll take—we'll pick two um, QDMA biologists and Adam and I, and we'll get a thousand acres and we'll hunt it with the moon in the right weather." And let them hunt it when the moon is wrong and the weather's horrible, and see who is more successful. We we ought to put we ought to set, we ought to set that challenge up.
1: I don't think <laughs> anyone. Think would, go for it. I don't think anyone would want to take those odds. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. So, um, but yeah. I, anyway, I, I'm not beating up on 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 anybody too much. I just I just seen too much, spent too much time in the woods, and just, just seen the moon affect deer. Um, and it, it really is. It, it hasn't been my experience that the phase of the moon, or, or, or you know, the fullness or the the half moon or whatever. That in my experience, that has not had a tremendous effect. It's the position of the moon. Um, you know, when you get that moon overhead, the right time of year, the the right time of day. That that that's the red moon, and and, and those are the days. That, that typically a, a bigger mature deer and, and deer in general are going to get up on their feet and, and want to feed. Um, you know, that it, 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 it's a timing thing, but it's the position, and it's the gravitational pull that with that overhead moon and that underfoot moon that, that makes them want to get up more often then than other times during the day. Now, obviously deer are creatures of the gray. They, they're, they're moving in the mornings, They're moving in the evenings, But when you throw in there – good weather and you throw in there an overhead moon man it just and that's all you need is one little small bump in your favor and you get it done
1: right because because we're talking about in most cases right you you're looking for when that moon time correlates with the last hour of daylight or so or the first hour of daylight in the morning like you said you know combining gray light with this increased influence of the moon that's what might just get them out five minutes early right
2: that, that, that's exactly right. And the, and the deer hunters moon guide has done that. You know, they, they put that thing together in the nineties and it, it, maps that out. And not only that, if, if you, if you can't hunt that day, you know, you, you can absolutely can't hunt that red moon day. You've got to go another day. That moon guide will tell you, you know, whether you need to hunt bedding transition or feed based on the moon's position for that particular day, you can hunt. And again, you're going to stack the deck a little bit in your favor by, by looking at that, yeah. um, you, you know, because it, it times the deer when they're going to be where. And I, I, that's a, it's an inexpensive tool, man. I mean, 19, 20 bucks, whatever they are, but my goodness, the amount of money to spend on other trail cameras and leases and bows and everything else. I mean, this can actually, that, that tool can actually help you determine when that deer is going to move and you can have the best stuff in the world if, if, if your timing's off, it's going to be for naught you know i mean it's just not it's not
1: gonna work yeah yeah if, if there's been anything that i've learned um you know in my kind of evolution as a hunter over the last you know 15 20 years and especially the last few years now that i've been running the podcast and getting to talk to so many successful hunters there's nothing more important almost nothing more important than proper timing because that's that's directly connected to keeping pressure low, which is maybe the most important thing if you're trying to kill big mature deer. So getting that timing right is so crucial. And so I pay just like it sounds like you too pay obsessive attention to all these different conditions that might just give me that 1% greater chance of the big boy walking through today, being out there during daylight. And if you line up a couple of those along with doing all of your other homework, all of a sudden you've got a 10% chance better that you might be able to get a shot on that day. And that, those little things make all the difference in the world, as far as I'm concerned.
2: No, no you, you couldn't have said it any better. There, there, and especially for a guy, you know, like myself and other guys from from the southeast to travel to the Midwest, man, we are limited on time. If if we know that the moon's going to be great the last week in October, you know, we we need to plan our vacation for that last week in October. If it's going to be the first week of November, you know, we need to consult that moon and help it plan when we're going to be there. The weather can change and all that. It's hard to predict that that far in advance. But, yeah, every little teeny thing you can do to stack the odds in your favor, you, you owe it to yourself for all the work you're doing to, to do that.
1: Yeah. Now, would you agree that weather still trumps the moon? So if you have a huge warm front push through and it's 75 degrees on November 1st, even if it's a red moon day, that's going to hurt you versus, you know, having With, a cold front.
2: Without Yes, without a doubt. I would go in this order. I would say pressure is your number one thing. If you've got a highly pressured hunting area, um, I'd rather have five acres to myself than 2,000 acres with 20 other hunters. I mean, pressure is number one. Number two is weather, without a doubt. Um, you know, what? we touched on high pressure, cold fronts, you know, it being cold in general. Um, and, and, then, and then the moon would be third. Mm -hmm. those are the three, you know, in that order of, in my opinion, the importance of, um, you know, of of, of deer hunting a particular place.
1: All right. So real quick, before we move on to our next question for Joe, we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, DeerLab.com. DeerLab is a trial camera photo management and analysis tool that allows you to upload your trail camera photos online to DeerLab and then use it to better analyze and pattern your local deer. And this year I've been using DeerLab myself already to pattern the number one Michigan buck I'm after, a deer I call Holyfield. So with DeerLab, once I've uploaded my photos, The tool looks at the date and time for each photo and then automatically pulls in, you know, all the weather factors that were present at that time. Things we've just been talking about, like barometric pressure, moon, temperature, all that kind of stuff. So then when I go back and look at these individual pictures, especially those daylight pictures, I can try and see what conditions were present at that time that might have influenced that movement. Even better though, DeerLab aggregates this data and helps me see those larger, pa- larger patterns through you know, the reporting and profiling tools. For example, once I got all these photos uploaded, I took a look at which camera that this buck showed the most up on, and I found that that was my front food plot camera. Next, I looked at the wind report for that camera, and when I did this, I had a really eye-opening experience. The report showed me that almost every time Holyfield showed up on this plot, including eight different times during daylight, It was with a south or southwest wind. Like, almost that was the only wind direction he was showing up on. And this was a massive realization for me because up to that point, up to this point, really, I would never hunt this area with those winds. If I hadn't seen this report, this information kind of visualized this way, that's what I would have continued to do. I'd keep hunting there with north and northeast winds, and I would have never seen him during daylight. So now that I've seen this trend, I've realized I need to figure out a way how to hunt there on those southerly winds. So now I've got a plan in place for how to do that I'm going to move a ground blind in, and I think it's going to work out. But this really massive major lesson learned, it would have never happened without using DeerLab. So if you're interested in trying out DeerLab yourself to better manage and analyze your trail camera photos, we've got a cool deal available for Wired to Hunt listeners. If you visit DeerLab.com W2H you can get an extended 30-day free trial period and the ability to upload a larger number of photos for free. 250 photos, in fact. So head over to DeerLab.com W2H to get this extended free trial and learn a few new things from your trail camera photos. It's free, it's easy, and honestly, it's very eye-opening. So with that said, check it out. And now let's get back to our next question for Joe, very much related to this topic you mentioned earlier when you're when you're looking at trail camera pictures to pay attention to things like the wind direction and i think you know this is something i've been talking about a lot the, the past few episodes is just the importance of of always asking why so like if you get a trail camera picture during daylight or you see mr big during daylight ask why look at all these specific things was the barometer high was it the right moon time was it because of a cold front was it the wind direction and figure out what correlated with this sighting so that you can do exactly what you did with that buck you looked at what the two factors were he did last time he was in daylight waited for it to happen again boom you went in there he acted the same way i think that's that is such a key thing when you're trying to target these older deer
2: yeah, and another thing. I mean, that's exactly right. Look at the picture and ask why. But but even more so than that, did, did the farmer just cut the corn? Did the farmer just yeah. um, harvest the soybeans? Yeah. You know, did they just cut some timber next door? You know, look, look at everything that could affect the deer. Um, you know, oh, bam, he just showed up. Maybe he just got kicked from somewhere else. Did 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 you hear about a buddy going in and walking his place or something? You know, every every little thing. Anything, any intel you can gather is going to make you more successful.
1: Yeah, so true. Can, can you tell us about that next buck? You, you told us about the first year. What about the second year? What was the specific situation there that you were able to capitalize on?
3: The
2: same type stuff. Um, th- that year, I do not think that we got any um, trail cam intel um, of that deer other than nocturnal pictures. We didn't get any daylight pictures of him. And I waited until the very end of October to go to Illinois. And I think I killed him on the 4th of November, you know, before the rut got going. And I waited again until I had a northeast wind because I knew it had worked for that other buck. And I waited for that red moon. And that deer, I've got all three of these deer on video, by the way. Um, that deer was actually bedded in the CRP, and I actually saw him stand up at 4:30 out of his bed, and and I ended up actually snort wheezing him in. Um, but uh, I, I saw him stand up out of his bed at 4:30 in the afternoon, 186 inch, five and a half year old deer, in, in early November, um, and and it was on a red moon afternoon with a high pressure. It was high pressure that day. Um, it, it was cool, and it was getting colder. A, a little cold front was coming in, and we had a red moon that afternoon. And he got up, and I, I snort wheezed him right over to me and shot him.
1: Wow. So, so these these are both examples were you traveling from South Carolina, Illinois. And from what I've seen, you know, you do a little bit more hunting around the Midwest in addition to that spot in Illinois too. And there's a lot of people I think that have this type of situation where they, they've got their rut vacation week or whatever it might be that they've blocked off and they're going to travel across the country or whatever it might be to their spot for the rut. And they've got seven days or five days or 10 days Can you share with us a little bit about what you found to be the keys to pulling off that kind of traveling hunt? You know, you've got a short amount of time, relatively new place, far from home.
2: Yeah. I, you know, as a, as a bow hunter and the experience that that, that I've gotten, um, you know, the, the rut can be tough for a bow hunter when they're running and, 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 you know, you know, they're, they're under you one second, they're running past you another, they're all over the place. You see a lot of deer and it's exciting. But I haven't killed a lot of big deer in the prime of the rut. I think big deer wise, the latest I've ever killed a really big deer was like the 10th of November, maybe the 11th, you know, before the real break loose phase start. Most of my success has come from the end of October to the first week of November, that pre rut time. So I look at that as the time to be there. And then if I want to tweak it a little more, then I consult, you know, a moon guide and, and see when that red moon is going to fall during that time, and then bam, that's when I'll set my schedule to go. And and I can do that, you know, I can do that in in, in April. You know, I can look at a at a moon guide chart in April and and determine when that red moon is going to be in October, first of November, and I can set my travel time for for then.
1: Now, how do you how do you plan a, how do you plan a hunt? You know, I I don't know this 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 obviously is variable depending on the situation every year but let's say you've got 7 days to go hunt this place and maybe it's new let's say you know like we were talking about earlier you you showed up you met some farmer in the middle of summer they end up giving you permission you get to walk it really fast maybe when you're there in July but now you're back in late October early November you got your 7 days if that was you do you dive right in to the core or do you hang on the outside and hang trail cameras and work your way in? Or how do you approach that with, you know, that five, yeah. seven day time frame?
2: Well, you know, everybody hunts a little different. Um, now we can cheat a whole lot because we have those text cameras. So if you put those, you know, you put those cameras, those covert or you know, raconics a lot of people make the 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 cameras that'll text or email you the pictures. So we, we can cheat. If we're out there in July, we meet the farmer. He lets let us hang some cameras. We're gonna know what's going on and what we need to do. Mm-hmm. But let's say you didn't have. Let's say you you know you didn't have that. You didn't have a text camera. Um, you, the farmer did let you hang some cameras. So you, you're gonna have to plan your seven days. You've looked at the moon guide. You're going out there and in, in end of October, first week of November. Those are gonna be your seven days. Obviously, I get there. Um, I will pull those cards. I mean, I, even if I have to go into the area, I've got to know. You know, I've got to know what's in there, and I, I will I will get those cards. You know, if the farmer and I have really hit it off, and I can get him to go in there on a rainy day and pull the cards out, or I got a buddy that can do it, pull the cards and mail them to me, or or you know, just email me the pictures of the good deer. Um, you know, you, you again, you want as much intel as you can get. But let's say you can't do that, you can't do any of that, you, you don't even have trail cam. So, a, a lesson I learned from an old hunter, Miles Keller is you hunt from the outside in. You know, you've got seven days to hunt. Man, don't, don't bust right in there if you don't know exactly where that deer is bedding, you don't know exactly what trails he's using. Man, start out on the edges and hunt into him. I made a huge mistake in Canada one year. Um, there were two stands hung um, between this bedding area and food and, and, and food source. One was kind of an observation stand, and one was, you know, kind of the kill stand. And I was debating back and forth what to do, what to do, because I didn't have trail cameras. I didn't know where, when, where, how the deer were coming. And I said, you know, you know what? I'm going go to go into the to the kill tree. And I went in there, and darn if the deer didn't come through downwind of me. And it was a big 160 inch chocolate rack buck, oh,
1: and I, I blew it.
2: Had I had I set up in that observation stand, I would have seen him do that. And there was this was early, so they were still doing the same things every day. And then I could have adjusted that that observation stand and brought it in 60 yards and I'd have killed him the next afternoon. Um, but I, I I blew it um, because I didn't hunt the outside end. So in, in simplifying that, hunting somewhere where you, you don't expect you're going to kill and you don't expect you're going to disturb anything, but you can see what's going on and tweak your setup from there.
1: Do you do any actual on the ground scouting? Like, I mean, other than just observing, like you just mentioned, do you actually go and look for sign or is that something you're not as focused on?
2: I I will do that. Um, again, every property is different. Every property can take different levels of stress. Um, it depends on the property. You know, I, I like to hunt the outside in as much as I can where I can see. Um, but then if it's dead, you know, and I've got a limited amount of time, eventually you're going to have to blow that property up. You know, you, you, you've got to get down into the nitty gritty. Um, but I want to do that delayed as much as I can. If I don't have that trail cam information, you know, that's obviously key. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking from a point that we don't, we're saying we don't have trail camera intel. Um, then what I would do, I would hunt the outside in. If I see something that, that I can move on then I would obviously move on it. And and if that's not working, then, yeah, you're going to have to get down and you're going to have to do some walking. And and, in that case, I would do the old hang and hunt technique. You know, I would would get a lone wolf and some sticks, and I would get down and I'd dive into the meat of it. But, by golly, I would be – as soon as I found it, I'd set my stand up and and hunt right then, and I'd be right back there the next morning. Um, I'd hunt morning afternoon, and if you don't get it done, break it down, move to your next spot. Get on that hot, freshest sign, set everything back up, and, and, and get after it again. But I think it's important that, that people understand that when you do that, when you want to do the hang and hunt, you need to set it up, hunt that afternoon, and then I, a lot of times, will leave all my stuff in the tree and go back and hunt it the next morning. Because what you don't want to have happen is you go in there and hunt, hang it, you don't hunt that afternoon, that deer comes by there, smells where you've been, and it's over, and you never even knew he was there. Right. So. Hunt it, hunt it that afternoon. Hunt it the next morning, and then if if it's dead and 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 you've got another area, you can go and look and hang and hunt again. Then move out and do it again, um, because you're you know like you said, it's a limited time, and you've got a, you've got a you got to get it done. And if it's not happening that way, you you you've got to kind of force it, and eventually you're going to blow it up. You're either going to kill him or you're going to blow him out of there, and you know hopefully you learn something.
1: Right, and at least you can say yeah. you tried.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's that's, it. Uh, that's exactly right.
1: What specific sign do you look at as like hot that, yes, this is something I would hang, you know, hang and hunt over? You know, are you a guy that really like scrapes or is it rubs or what matters? What is the sign that matters to you?
2: Again, I'm more of a terrain guy. Um, obviously, I look for all that. I think a ton of that sign is done at night. Um, but but if if, if 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 I'm creeping down a property I don't know anything about and and all of a sudden I'm I'm getting to the edge of a of a big thicket and there's some rubs and scrapes coming out of there that are you know extremely fresh yeah man I'll I'll, I'll throw up right there and, and set up a stand hunt it that afternoon hunt it the next morning um, and, and I, I'm more of a terrain guy I feel like uh, the the, the in that situation, the closer you can get to the to the thicket where they're coming out of the bedding area, the, the better off you're going to be. Um, and, and so I I, look, I love big scrapes. I love big rubs. All that's wonderful. But but I still want to have the terrain right, and I want to have that thicket to be able to hunt. Because if those scrapes and rubs are there and there's a giant bedding area, more than likely he's going to be in there.
3: Mm-hmm. I, I lo-
2: and a lot of the sprint, you know, they're done at night and, and without, again, you, people call it cheating or whatever they want to call it. I, I call it using the tools that we've got. Trail cameras can eliminate so much of that, so I can't put enough stress on using trail cameras to do your scouting for you or a lot of it for
1: you. Yeah. So let's say you did have cameras in this kind of situation while you're there. How would you, you know, late October, early November, are you putting these on scrapes? Are you put them on funnels? Are you moving them every couple days? How would you go about actually using cameras in that deal?
2: I have, I have screwed up there too, moving cameras and, and, and trying to position them in season when I'm hunting and, and having deer come by and smell them and, and, and run. The, the Team 200 show that aired last night, was um, I think it'll air again later this week. Was of my Kansas kill in two thousand this this past November, and you watch this buck come up out of this bottom with a doe, and I'd been in and checked that covert camera that earlier that day, and he smells it and cranes his neck around and looks at that camera, and he about blows out of there, but he's with a hot doe, um, and 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 he ended up staying with her, and I was able to kill him, but that that's. Man, I want those cameras in areas. I think the deer are are going to be traveling, um, and, and you know, if you if you set up that, that's every, again, everything is so different. to To put that into a cookie cutter equation is difficult because there, I can't say there aren't times that I moved the camera from from a trail or a funnel area on top of a big fresh scrape because I want to know what deer that was. Maybe he did it at night, but I know there's a booner in there now, and. Um, you know, hopefully the camera didn't booger him up, and I'm going to concentrate on that area a little more. So, yeah, I, I've, I've done that. But but theoretically or, or practically, um, you know, if you can put the cameras in there earlier and leave them and not move them around, the deer will get used to them. Um, you know, I try and hide my cameras some or hang them a little higher than normal um, because, you know, bigger deer, like you well know, man, when you mess with their bedroom, they, they, they can pick it out. I mean, they, they they can find those cameras. Um, so yeah, again, every situation is different. But hopefully, when you were there in July, getting things set up, you put the cameras out. And if you can't get the farmer to go in and and pull the cards for you on a rainy day, and you got to wait till you get there, or well, you just got to go in and check them. You got to know what's there. So you go in as scent free as you possibly can, pull the cards, replace the card with another card, get out of there, do your inventory, and then see what you got. And then you can, you can adjust from there.
1: How often would you check those cameras during the season? Is that like just once at the beginning or would you every several days?
2: It, you know, again, and I, and I hate to not answer things in, in, emphatically, but, but it, it just depends on what's going on. Yeah. If, it's, if, it's, if it's dead... And I will check my cameras more often. You know, again, I've got limited time I can be there. If I've got a giant Boone and Crockett, Boone and Crockett in there that showed up in, in one time in daylight in the last two weeks, buddy, I ain't going to wait until time is perfect. I'm getting my butt out of there, and I'm going to go back in there when, when, when the time is, is perfect to kill him. Um, now, if I don't kill him, you know, within a couple of days, then I might check the cameras again, and you know what, I might move them around again because I've got limited amount of time you know with, with these guys that own these giant farms in iowa and illinois and live on them you know they, they can be a little more patient but for a traveling hunter um you, you're going to have to be a little more aggressive and you're going to have to do things a little more um untraditional and so yeah i mean to say, and that does break the rule, you know to get in there and, and and tromp up the place and move a camera to another area um you, you know that 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 does, but if but if it's dead for you and you're not getting, you're not seeing anything, nothing's happening. You you, you can't just sit there and, and, and hope. You got to sometimes make it happen.
1: Yeah, that's tough. You got to know when to swing for the fences and when to hold back and wait. And, and making that decision is definitely one of the toughest in that type of situation.
2: No, no question about it. And and, and again, that's why it's so darn fun. And, and you're gonna make yeah. a mistake. You, I mean, you you can't. You can't beat yourself up. I mean, I, I did that deer in, in, in Canada like that, and you know I was ticked off about it for a little bit. But man, I learned. I will never do that again. And if I'm ever put in that situation again, I know exactly what to do. Yeah. So I learned. I learned the hard way. Um, and so, yeah, you, you get in there and you tromp it up, and you don't kill anything, and and uh, you blow a big one out of there. Well, you know what? You, you learned, and and you just got to move on.
1: What do you typically now, on average? Let's say you're, you know, walking through a property or heading to your tree stand or whatever, you spook a big shooter buck, you see him run off. What's going through your mind at that point? How do you how do you adjust? Do you are you the type that goes and hunts right there, you know, bump and dump, or do you back out?
2: No, without a doubt, I'm hunting right there the next day. I'm hunting there right then. I'm I'm gonna if I'm, if I'm walking in to hang a stand, or I'm walking in to check the camera, and I jump a great big deer out of his bed, I am I'm going to stop everything I'm doing. I'm going to set up a stand where I can shoot into that bed, and I'm going to make sure I've got the wind right on the direction. I think he's going to enter back into that bed. Uh, I'm going to hope that he didn't smell me, um, but I'm going to hunt right there that um, that afternoon, and I will be right back in there real early the next morning. Um so, yeah, the old Andre DeQuisto bump and dump, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not personally ever done that. I've never had a situation where I've done that. But if I did do that, that that, that is what I would do.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the old Andre DeQuisto move is uh, legendary. And um, it's it's pretty interesting to think about. And it's a great way to take advantage of what a lot of people think is a really bad thing to have happen when you bump a big deer. But, um you know, in this kind of way you can take advantage of because you just even though you spooked that deer, you just uncovered one of the most valuable pieces of the puzzle. You know exactly where he was bedded. So if you're willing to take advantage of that, it's kind of a Hail Mary, right? I mean, either it's going to work or you're gonna, you know, booger into yeah, his bedroom. Yeah. But
2: Yeah, well you, you you messed him up, so the chances of you going around and finding another spot to kill him, you're just gonna trump through more stuff and everything else. You've already done the damage. You've either Done a great thing, and he doesn't know what you are, and he's going to be right back in there because his bed worked, and he got out of there safely, or you would blown him out of the country. One of the two. So yeah. might as well, might as well give it, a, give it a shot. But back to Andre, he and and I'll leave the moon alone <laughs> after this. But Andre, and he wasn't paid by anybody to say anything. He was a big, big proponent of Jeff Murray's Moon Guide and and using that overhead and that red moon. I mean, he was he was real big on that. If you look at some some old vintage footage of whitetail addictions and listen to him talk about, talk about the moon. Um, you know, it's, he, he was a big, big proponent of the moon.
1: Yeah. That that was one of the things I noticed too. And, and one of the reasons why I've, you know, begun to pay more attention to it. And, And, you know, for me, I'm still trying to test the theory. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about how this can work, some people say, "Well, I don't know." I'm at this point, you know, trying to start correlating the data. You know, okay, matching up what I've seen versus what the moon was. Paying attention to this. And it's, either way, it's pretty fascinating stuff to try to pay attention to. But when you hear people like like you or Adam or Andre or Dan in Fault or whoever it is who consistently are seeing this help them, it's hard to argue that there that there's not something there. Um, so sure. I'm. I'm intrigued with it, and uh, I need to get myself the the guide for this year because I'm definitely gonna be watching it. Um, I'm curious when it comes to that time of year in general. You know, on average, are you what's your you your favorite type of rut setup? I guess you know, there's some guys that love betting ears. There's some guys that want to be in your traditional pinch point. Do you have like a favorite? Like, if you could pick the ideal rut setup, what would that look like?
2: I, I like I like the thickets, man. I like thick areas, CRP fields, um, thick areas. I just it seems like but most all the big deer that I have killed have come out of come out of CRP or out of thickets, and, and and that's just from a personal standpoint. You know, a lot of guys, you know, the rut's going on, hunt where the does are. Yeah, but I think of, of you know the deer we're after, the great big ones. They, a lot of times they'll go into the, those doe areas, pick those does up at night, and then bring them into a thicket you know, herd them in there and keep them into their, you know, in their, their domain. So, so for me, um, you know, I, I'm a, a big thicket guy when the ruts you know, about to get going or on the edges of the thicket. Again, I haven't had a tremendous amount of success during the, the, the heat of the rut. Um, you know, I've, I've normally had my success pre-rut, but um, you know, obviously I've hunted my butt off during the rut. So thickets, um, all-day sits followed by, you know, uh, real good funnels um, and, and bottleneck areas uh, because, you know, when those bucks are really out traveling, you know, if you get them in between a doe, you know, those all-day sits and those funnels and bottlenecks can be 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 really good. And, you know, I've seen a lot of guys kill them on, on food plots where they come all the way out to the food plot and they're running the does around the food plots. I mean, I see that on Sportsman's Channel and, and Outdoor Channel every night. So. <laughs> You know, they kill them in the, they kill them in the red on those food plots too but yeah, it does um, happen from a, from a, yep yeah. so but from a personal standpoint and and not having the luxury of a five thousand acre um plantation in Iowa with pristine food plots i I, I like a big gnarly thicket and, and sit there all day
1: when it comes to those thickets usually do you like to be right in the middle of them or are you usually hunting downwind of them you know waiting for something to cruise downwind and try to smell them out
2: yeah, th- that and, and I, I don't like to get right in the middle of them because I got to get you know get out of there at some point. I like to hunt on the edges of them where I can see over into them. You know, be able to call it something if there's a buck coming through there alone. Um, I don't like to get right in the middle. And and, and yeah, I, I will look at it from a map standpoint and, and figure out where I think the deer is going to be coming from and get the get the wind right, especially if he's coming by there. You know, he's going to enter that where the the wind's in his favor. You know, he's going to scent check it, want to check for hunters, want to check for predators in general, and, and wanting to find a hot doe. So he's going to use that wind to get into that thicket, and of course you've got to pay attention to that. But yeah, I don't like to get in the absolute middle of it. Um, that that's not my that's not my speed.
1: Yeah, yeah, like you said, that's an interesting thing you brought up too. Like the whole access issue, access and exit. That's such an important thing that. Uh sometimes when we start talking about the rut, I think people kind of throw that out the window and stop worrying about access and exit and making sure you've got a stealthy way to get in and out. But do you, do you still pay attention to that? Is that something that's important to you even during that period of time when deer are a little bit crazy?
2: Not, not super. I I mean, again, I want to not, not like early season when enter and exit or pre-rut is so, so important. When the, when the rut's going just haywire crazy, um, you know, you, you got to get in the right spot, and if that means giving up a little bit on your entry and exit, that you know, by all means, um, you know, you got to get in there. And if you're going to be sitting all day, you're you're only coming in, you know, and out one time. Um, and so, I, I still think you need to pay attention to it, but that doesn't need to be the number one factor.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I've seen too. It seems like it, when you're ranking those things in order of importance, it shifts during the rut a little bit and uh like you said you've got to be in the right place in a lot of cases right you might spook some deer in the morning walking in let's say if you've got a subpar access route but the buck that's going to roll through there at noon maybe he might have been a mile away so
2: exactly right right. yeah if it looks good man don't 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 not hunt it because you can't get into it during the rut you know get into it take your lumps and and then get ready for the Mid morning, middle day, early afternoon, evening hunt, and you're you're already where you need to be.
1: Yeah. So, what do you have? Where are you hunting this coming fall, Joe? For white. I
2: am leaving. Yep, I am leaving uh, the thirtieth of August, and I'm flying up to Edmonton, Alberta. Um, I've got a buddy up there that uh, has some really good property that's north of the bow zone and, and close to the Saskatchewan border. Um, he does do some outfitting. Um, so I'm going to hunt with him for seven or eight days and we're going to hunt mule deer in the mornings and whitetail over alfalfa and, um, canola in the evenings. So that, that's my, 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 first hunt. And then, um, depending on, I've got cameras in Illinois, got cameras in kansas that are already going and showing some pretty good deer um you know waiting for velvet to get off to see what's what's going to happen there so i'll be hunting in illinois and kansas during the pre-rut um you know rut time frame and, and even before then if if, if something big hard horned is, is daylighting um and then i always finish out the year um in texas i take my son down to texas and he rifle hunts and i bow hunt we We've got a little east down there. This this free range, and um, it's a lot of fun. There aren't a bunch of giants on there, but there are a bunch of bunch of nice deer. And and I love hunting with my son. He's twelve now, and and so that's a real special time for us. And and so that's where I'll finish out the year.
1: Sounds like a great a great set of plans there. It's gonna be a fun year.
2: Man, I'm excited. I can't wait. Can't get here soon enough.
1: And it's gonna be here soon. August 30th. We are not far from that at all. I uh, no I. I leave just after that for my own early season whitetail trip, and I'm uh, I'm just beginning to panic a little bit because I'm not sure I've got everything ready. <laughs> so, gotta get some <laughs> I know final the things feeling, done.
2: Man. Yeah, I know the feeling. It's uh, it'll it'll be here before we know it. And the the, the, the bow heads need to be sharp, and the bow needs to be tuned. There's no doubt about
1: it. Yep, gotta be prepared. So, uh, final question for you, Joe. You know, being a member of Team Two Hundred and hanging out with people like Adam and all those guys and all the other, you know, uh, successful hunters I'm sure you've been able to be around. Is there anything that you've found that all these most successful hunters you know have in common or that they do differently than the average hunter? You know, if there's anything in addition yeah. to what we've already talked about?
2: Yep. Yep, it is it is really really simple. I think a lot of guys get to the same level of, of hunting prowess or hunting skill. I, I don't think that there's some superhuman hunting ninja um, that's so much better than, than somebody else. I think a lot of guys have the same same level of hunting skills, and it is a skill you develop, but I think a lot of people can, can get there. Um, the difference I have seen to the guys that consistently kill really big deer is they work extremely hard at it. They are... They, they run it, and, and, they, and, and financially, too, man, they, they sacrifice. You know, they've got the trail cameras. They've got the leases. Um, you know, they're not necessarily rich men by any stretch. You know, I hear that, and it makes me so mad. But he's just rich. he You know, he's hunting in the best areas. That's not true. Some of the best whitetail hunters I know are are, are very, very blue-collar, humble means guys, but they sacrifice financially, and they work their butts off to kill these big deer they're constantly looking for new places they're constantly out scouting in the summers glass and bean fields they're they're spending you know all they can spend on trail cameras and getting into the best properties they can get but but they're working their butts off so if there's one common denominator between all the good deer hunters that i know and have associated with they work really hard at it
1: I'd I'd have to say I've seen the same thing. There's some there's some things that there's not any kind of secret tactic. It's just simply putting your putting your time and energy where your mouth is and putting in the work.
2: That's it, man. Common sense, common sense. Really studying what's going on and working hard, and and you'd be as absolutely as good as any other hunter on the planet.
1: Yeah. So Joe, if people want to learn more about what you're doing with the, with the hunts, the broker, the brokering there, or, you know, watch your episodes on team 200, where can they go find that stuff online?
3: Yeah.
2: Um, my, my company is sporting adventures international. And, and the website is sporting com, like alpha David Victor short for adventures. So sporting com is, is, is my website for, for my company. And then, um, 200inch.com is the Team 200 uh, website, 200inch.com. Um, and a lot of the episodes post up on there. And then obviously the show is running now at 7.30 on Monday nights on the Sportsman Channel right before Monday Night Football um, once that gets started. And um, then it runs a couple times later in the week as well. So if people just keep over the show or record it, You know, they'll be able to see it. But it's a, it's a pretty cool show. Got a lot of big buck killers on there. And, Man, there, there are a, lot, a lot of big deer hit the ground with with archery equipment on that show, and I'm just proud to be be part of that team.
1: Yeah, a lot of good guys it seems like, and I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed all the episodes I've seen myself, and to your point, I think two of your seasons, or most of the episodes from two of the seasons, are online to watch You know, for anyone, whether you've got cable or not, or whether you've got you know the time to watch the scheduled airing. So definitely check that out, guys. I'll make sure to uh, put links to all that stuff in the blog, yeah, the blog post for this podcast, too. So, Joe, this has been, this has been great. Really appreciate you uh, spending some time here chatting.
2: No, Mark, I appreciate it too, man. Good luck to you on that hunt, and uh, yeah, let's keep in touch. I want to see some some great pictures this year.
1: Sounds good. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll have some good stories, and you'll have some good stories, and we can bring you back on to talk about how everything we talked about here today led to a couple big deer on the ground.
2: Man, I've got my fingers crossed. Thank you, buddy.
1: <laughs> All right, Joe, have a good one. All right. So there you have it. A lot to digest, but really helpful perspective, I think. So a couple quick reminders before we go. First, be sure to check out what we're doing over on the 100% wild podcast that's my shorter form podcast with the dreweries in which we answer listener submitted deer hunting questions and that show is really coming into form we're, we're trying to make some tweaks to make it even more fun and educational to listen to so be sure to check that out throughout the season and in the coming weeks and submit your own question too we would love to listen to it and, and try to answer too so also we need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible so thank you to sitka gear trophy ridge bear archery redneck blinds Huntera Maps, Ozonix, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And speaking of, also be sure to check out that free trial with Deer Lab over at DeerLab.com slash W2H. That's Deerlab.com slash W2H. So with all that said, thank you all for joining us today. I hope this one was helpful, and I hope you will stay wired to hunt.
0: Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly, edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.